Facebook is gonna have the news. The day, Monday. What month is it? November 11th. Veterans Day. Today is Veterans Day. Again, we shouldn't have had the, put the show out on Mondays. There's so many holidays. I think there's just, there's just too many holidays. Too many holidays. We should be holidays. working more. Yes. And that's the we'll topic of that. today's <laughs> podcast. The city, Los Angeles, the people. I'm Hayes Davenport. I'm here with co-host Alyssa Walker. Scott Frazier is out. We knew that he was going to be either out of town or sick. He said that he possibly felt the flu coming on. I believe he's sick was the verdict, I mean, right? what, whatever excuse, he's covered. <laughs> but we have two guest hosts today, Rachel Reyes and Haley Potiker. They both work on Fair Work Week, which is a new initiative that we are going to be talking about very soon. Haley, you work for Lane. What's your title? I'm the Senior Communications Specialist oh. for Lane. Uh, and Rachel, you work with Lane on, on the Fair Work Week initiative. Exactly, as a volunteer. But, but you're both general, just like political gadabouts. You're on the scene. You yes. know what's, what's going on. You're yeah. posting. I post constantly. <laughs> so we wanted to have you guys around to talk about all this stuff. Any L.A. stories from this week? I abdicate my L.A. story to the three of you. Wow. Alyssa, go ahead. I just had an amazing experience yesterday of what I, I'm calling like the quintessential fall L.A. day where you decide it's like pretty nice weather. So you take your family out for a hike. And then as you finish your hike, the mountain next to you catches on fire and you yeah. go eat in and out and then go home. So <laughs> <classic>. <laughs> everything I think is OK with that fire it was the one that was in like North Hollywood Universal City area but i think they got it under control but it was a little scary just flames shooting up it seemed like a healthier and, fire than some of the oh, other yes. ones the smoke quite healthy was, was very was white a, and cloud wonderful fragrance mm -hmm. like a lot of chaparral yeah tones in that I and no wind no wind i mean they pretty much had it under control all in all it was a nice fire it was great they had the super scoopers Going out to the Pacific Ocean, which I thought was kind of That's interesting. a little far. Yeah. Lake Hollywood is right there. Well, the, 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 the uh, helicopters were going to the reservoir in Hollywood. And I don't know why they oh, weren't. The super scoopers are the too super, big. The planes, yeah. Ah. So that was kind of cool to see. You could actually, we were watching like, you know, the, mm. it was, yeah, you're right. It was a great fire. Yeah. Rachel, Haley. So I had one day this off this Rachel week. This Rachel speaking, I should say. Rachel's LA story. <laughs> yes, hi. I had one day off this week and I used it just to run errands and I was wearing my Bernie 2020 sweatshirt and I was stopped about a handful of times all over the valley, Northridge Mall, the Vons on Sepulveda. And it was, I was stopped every single time by an older man of color who looked like my dad and had extended conversations with all of them, made sure to talk about down ballot races as well. And it was just actually a really great way to meet new people in the valley where I live and mm -hmm. Just flies in the face of all of the evidence um, talking about how Bernie bros are white men. And it was just, it was really nice. Where you have always lived, where you were born. Yes, born and raised, went to school for 12 years, yeah. LUSD. So yeah, it was really, really fun. I liked that day. If it was a sweatshirt, <laughs> it must have been sometime before like 11 a.m. or sometime after like five when it's so cold <laughs> I, at every I was other sweaty. time. Yeah, it was, oh, it was okay. a pretty bad idea. But yeah. when I left my house, it was cool enough to have it on. It was like, uh -huh. great. I don't need a jacket. And yeah, by midday when I got to Vons, I was like, Ooh, OK, I should have worn my yeah. Bernie shirt under the sweatshirt. Mm -hmm. yeah. But yeah, it was fine. Haley. So I was at the 25 year ce celebration, I guess, of Prop 187. I don't 
know why Is we're that, calling it a celebration. Yeah. Should we call it that? Yeah. Talk about what Prop 87 was. So Prop 87 was a ballot initiative. It was passed in 1994. It was overturned by the courts just a few years later, and it would have denied people who are here, immigrants who are here without paperwork, access to most public institutions, namely public education, healthcare, et cetera, et cetera. It really galvanized the immigrant population, primarily folks from Mexico and Latin America, and especially like college-aged kids at the time who are now a lot of our civic leaders. And so folks like Miguel Santiago, Kevin DeLeon, um, Maria Elena Durazo, Wendy Carrillo, trying to think of all the people I heard speak. I did learn for the first time yesterday that Eric Garcetti was arrested in the aftermath of Prop 187 at USC. He said that during his speech. Uh, Talk about that I know, that's what I said when she told me. I don't know. I feel like that should be in the stump. That's just my note. Yeah. should be in the stump. (laughs) Great LA stories. Let's talk about a big thing that happened this week at SCAG. Liam Dillon, LA Times writer, friend of the show, called it the housing's worst acronym. This is at the Southern California Association of Governments. We've talked in the past about how Gavin Newsom is requiring cities in California to build a lot more housing. Uh, And so the debate at SCAG over the last few months has been over how much and where uh, the housing is going to be built. Uh, What happened this week at SCAG, Alyssa? It was surprisingly Mm -hmm. positive. I think, first of all, everyone showed up. Not everyone, but I think 11 11, members and the mayor. Good old jailbreak Garcetti. He was there, too. And they were very vocal about saying we want this housing in our cities, on our wealthy West Side, you know, rich, job rich cities. And there were two options. There was the inland option and the coastal option, if you want to call them that. And one of them would have shifted most of the housing to like the Coachella Valley, places that don't have great transit, that have not a huge, huge job centers. And the other plan would have shifted more of the jobs to these coastal cities. And that's the one that passed. Mm-hmm. There was, I guess, a compromise. In a sh- there, right. There yeah. was a middle ground one, too. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's basically the one that passed. Right. Yeah. Was- I, mean, I mean, it was it's this idea that I mean, we, we'll take whatever we can get, I think, at this point. But I think the the plan is good. It's just that are we going to be able to convince these cities, especially ones like Beverly Hills, for example, which now will have to you know build more than three units of housing. Yeah, the number um, I saw really going around was their uh, arena allocation, how much housing they have to build goes from three units to 3,100 yeah, units. So... Uh, and the mayor of Beverly Hills, John that, Mirish, has been one of the most outspoken. Yeah, he wasn't there. Opponents. Interestingly, didn't, show didn't up. even come. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and I wanted to give another shout out to another city that had been has been very vocal, Culver City, which mm-hmm. you know we don't we kind of we use them as an example a few times on the show. And I actually wrote a story about how people who were getting older were having trouble staying in Culver City, and there's a lot of efforts to try to find like home sharing solutions for people because there's there's literally no place for people to go. So. The mayor of Culver City and a bunch of council members really like stepped up and made some really impassionate speeches mm-hmm. at, at the, this meeting and, you know, have kind of made the rounds and, and just talking about how important it is for them to be a leader as as one of these cities. So that was really great to see. Yeah, I think it's important to point out this is a misconception that I have a lot. These 
RENA requirements don't require the building of new housing. I say a lot like, oh, we, you have to build all this like new housing, but you have to rezone for it. Right. You have to make it possible, I guess. Is right. right. <laughs> but only through the zoning and all the, like, right. the other hoops you have to go that's through. That's a big deal, I think. Oh, it's huge. Yeah, it's like I mean, the first I think step that's, that you have to take. Yeah. And there are also like, you know, questions like there are affordability requirements within the new zoning. But I'm not sure exactly what those are, right. like how strong those are, like what kind of housing we would be getting right. with these new requirements. And then this week, Apple proposed $2.5 billion in housing. Yeah, where um, is that going? Well, is any of that coming that's in? That's the question, too. Like, what you, again, we're making all these conditions right for adding housing, but what actually gets built? And then Apple's you know, home city of Cupertino yeah. uh, has fought like every housing development. Exactly. We can't expect the people who got um, some of these folks to be unhoused to solve the problem. It's been mind blowing to see the reaction of that online. If they just, I, I don't, I don't need to get into that. But yeah. <laughs> I'm just, it, it's been really irritating to see, to see people wanting that. To your point, they have fought every single measure to get people housed in Cupertino. It's just been really upsetting to see. Now, I guess we have we have more money. We have more people, tech companies that obviously aren't paying enough taxes that they can just give this money back later on and no real direction to this money. And then at the same time, what happened this week, too, is we saw the governor maybe kind of walk back that big number, 3.5 unit million units or whatever he was saying. He kind of said something like, oh, well, you know, we can't. I'm not just not sure if we can do this, you know, myself or, but you know, it's just, I'm not either. (laughs) So I, he was going to build them all himself. Yeah. He was going to get out there with his construction. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, yeah, again, like these are all baby steps in the right direction. It's good. It's good that we decided this instead of something else. It's good that Apple wants to give the money away, whatever. But when it comes down to it, are we going to create the housing we need? Is it going to get built or created or whatever soon? Stay tuned. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Banana's story from this week. One of LA's newest museums, the Marciano Art Foundation, opened by blue jeans magnates <laughs> in 2017, which was, this is one of those museums like the Broad, where very rich people have an art collection and they put it on display and then they don't have to pay taxes on it, on it anymore. But some of the museums can happen to be very nice. At the same time, I never went. Did any of you go ever? I've been. What'd you think? It's nice. It's a cool space. It's a. It's an old Masonic temple, I think. Yeah, it's an amazing building. And they have right really cool visiting, traveling art installations that come through. And then I think their collection is, is fairly small and it includes a lot of Masonic artifacts. And it was by appointment only or something? Is that right? Or could you just walk in? It's just ticketed. Like it's ticketed, the same that yeah, like yeah. a lot of things right. are that they just ticket you ahead. Anyway, don't get too excited because it has closed. And the reason that it closed is because certain staff members at the foundation decided to begin the process of unionizing. Uh, and as soon as they initiated that, what, what was it, Haley? Basically, like a day later, they were all fired, about six dozen employees. Right. So AFSCME, District Council 36, filed paperwork with the NLRB declaring their intent to unionize on November 1st. And within the week, they laid off 70 associates and closed the exhibit. And these include doses, people that gave tours and like in general, like service workers at the foundation. Basically, all of their service workers. And these were folks making minimum wage who were unionizing Mm -hmm. primarily as a way to request a raise. Yeah. 
The museum said that it was because of low attendance that they decided to close. The museum is free, so it's hard <laughs> to know how... Yeah, at least come up with a better excuse than that. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. It, yeah. it, it's literally the worst excuse. It's, it was such an abrupt action. They might not have had time. <laughs> they, uh, the person, who, the person who writes the statements is probably Yeah, sort striking. of taken <laughs> by surprise. They were also all fired via email. Mm. What? So they sent out a mass email to their whole staff saying, anyway, we're closing the exhibit early and we're not going to open the next one we have scheduled. So just don't bother coming into work tomorrow. So what happens now? Are there repercussions? Like, can they sue the museum for this? Because this seems this seems like a, a really outrageous case. I believe the union already has filed an unfair labor practice charge. If this is retaliation for unionizing, then it is deeply illegal. And I assume that the NLRB will find in the workers' favor. Mm. Something I read in uh, uh, Carolina Miranda, friend of the show, has been writing about this. And she wrote about a group called Art and Museum Transparency that launched a spreadsheet where museum workers could post their salaries. And a lot of these jobs, you need like masters or and they generally start at around like 30,000 a year. And so and it's a, a huge number of employees and like you can see why they would want to exercise their bargaining power. But very discouraging that something like this would happen. Do you know if other local museums are unionized? Like is LACMA unionized? I would be really surprised if it was. Do you know, Haley? I'm not positive on museums, but I do know that this museum was a nonprofit and there has been quite a small wave of nonprofit organizing happening in the city. And this was sort of a part of that. Hmm. Have you all talked about what happened at AAAJ? No. T- tell us about that. So Asian Americans Advancing Justice is a really historic nonprofit legal foundation for immigrants that are Asian Pacific Islander. They laid off, I'm not going to know the exact number, about 20% of their staff just recently during a unionization drive as well. And they were also represented by AFSCME Council 36. Mm. Are they suing over this as well? I'm actually not sure what their next steps are. They had a few protests outside of their headquarters, which is on Wilshire and Lucas, I believe. Okay. But I'm not sure what the next steps are legally. That's something for the Marciano protesters. It's great protesting territory. It's very visible. I'm sure they're going to be out there all the time. It's an entire block. Right. There's nothing that, else along that there. That they can yep. take up. Yep. Yeah. We have talked recently about the decision under the Garcetti and the city's Green New Deal to close down a lot of coastal natural gas plants and a lot of which use seawater to cool themselves. Ten years ago, there was a law passed to stop those plants that use seawater to like suck them into the plant, cool themselves and like shoot it back out. That kills a lot of fish and other wildlife. Except this week, the California Public Utilities Commission recommended that four natural gas plants in the L.A. region, which were going to shut down in 2020, uh, be allowed to keep operating for three additional years. Because otherwise, the state and the region will face additional power shortfalls. They all said it was a very hard decision. I don't know if you saw this. Everyone on the commission said that they really agonized over it. But what does it mean that this was an idea that came up 10 years ago 
And now they're talking about extending it for another three years as we are trying to get away from fossil fuels in general. I mean, I think it has everything to do with the blackouts that we saw and everybody having this fear about our electrical grid, which we are pinning all of our hopes on for our carbon free future is not ready for the load that is going to have to carry, which is going to be additional to what it has is doing right now. And Sammy Roth, who wrote that story, had another great story last week just about these fears about, you know, if we're going to try to plug in all these new electric cars and have all houses run only on electricity instead of gas, you hear all these cynics coming up and saying, well, that's why we need gas. You know, that's why we need to have more gas instead, which is clearly not not the answer. The answer is have fewer electric cars, and have, get more people on transit and other ways to get around. But this is this this these fears are very real now because we've seen the fragility of of our grid and this opens the door for this type of plan to come back to resurface, right? Yeah. There was a quote in this article from Jan Smutney Jones, who's chief executive of the Independent Energy Producers Association. So they're very concerned about us being able to green up our energy system. Green up? Is that in? <laughs> green, up, green up was a quote. Green but up. said, if we suddenly start having reliability problems, then we'll lose popular support for getting rid of the natural gas plants they that my organization yeah. builds. <laughs> So uh, like nice grid, be a shame if something <laughs> happened to it. Yeah, he also published charts showing like the uh, the mix of electricity that California has now, which is mostly natural gas. So natural gas powers the grid primarily, but we're opening up new the Elan project, the solar project that is supposed to power this region. So that should be yeah, that was announced shifting. this week. Yeah, the biggest solar project in the country, right, is going to be supplying a lot of our. Energy. It's huge. It's ch- very cheap. It's a lot cheaper than natural gas. Yeah. You wonder like where the mobilization is to reduce our dependence on this kind of that's power. The thing, yeah, that's the thing you're not seeing. And you're not even seeing that from, I mean, obviously, again, the plans for getting us off of, you know, fossil fuels are give everyone an electric car, which is not going to work. <laughs> Especially, you know, once again, when we have these conversations about people who are renters or people who don't have access to charging systems. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't even know where where. they say that LA is installing charging stations at the fastest rate of like any big city in the country. And I don't even know where one could be to go to if I needed to plug in, if I needed, you know, didn't have one at my own house. Yeah. There's the blue LA. Yeah. I mean, there's the blue LA program, which is very successful, which is, you know, a car sharing system for, and, and aimed towards getting low income people who need cars to use them, which is great. And we should expand that. But beyond that, what happens to like the next year of people that maybe don't qualify for that, but also don't have, maybe they don't have their workplace and their home doesn't have a place. I mean, this, these are big problems that we need to confront like right away. And I don't see anything changing there. Yeah, go ahead. There's also the idea of speed, right? So you have these really high powered fast chargers, which go into more affluent areas. Mm -hmm. And then when less affluent areas do get access to public chargers, they often are slower or they are plugging in in their garages and their own home energy source, which is often way slower. And so that's, that's a disparity too, with these quick chargers. Right. And I I just, again, I mean, I will say this every show from now on, but we have to have somebody talking about getting people on better transit and and making that better transit. We have to have a sustained movement as part of this energy conversation. You know, we have a lot of different reasons to talk about better transit, but this needs to be the one. This is like the key issue here because we don't want to turn these plants back on. Are you kidding me? Like we're going to use this as our, what do we call it? What do they call it? The bridge fuel. We're going to, we're going to burn all of our bridges and uh, we're not going to have anywhere to go from here. 
Loretta Lynch, uh, former president of the Public Utilities Commission, says that it's a total waste of ratepayer money and that it would be diametrically opposed to state goals to extend these coastal gas plants and that the commission has uh, presented zero evidence of a need for new power. But I guess they technically need to satisfy a 15 percent reserve, 15 percent more power than they expect to need. They need that cushion. I was saying recently, maybe on the show, I forget about how much I missed. So Jose Huizar's office gets raided by the FBI. I'm so excited to do a segment for the rest of my life every week about this, about what happened. We've heard nothing. Nothing. From this investigation in... It's been months. Months. Total silence. He's still in office. He's posting. He's like, he's, he's having a good time. But we do have a very small piece of news this week about Huizar... I can't hear the song now, but I can't wait to listen and hear the song again. We got a tip about an event that Jose Huizar is hosting, uh, and he's handing out flyers for this at neighborhood councils. It is for a community shred day where you can go to a public space and have your documents destroyed. Oh, that's so on brand for him. (laughs) (laughs) That's so smart. It's a free service. It's unlimited document shredding. I wish we could oh, promote it, but it was on Saturday from 9 a.m. to noon. Certified document destruction. Who certified it? I guess he, like he yeah, did. Yeah, he did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Lemons to lemonade. Yeah. Thank you for, for the tip on that. Let's talk about Fair Work Week. First of all, explain your background in this movement, the work that you do now that you said that you worked every day this week and about what what Lane is is, is trying to do to, to change how people work in Los Angeles. Right. So I started my retail career five years ago when I was living in London and I started working for Sweaty Betty when I was over there. So England has zero hour contracts, which basically just mean that you're employed by a company, mm-hmm. but they don't have to give you shifts. You don't have to take them. You're just kind of on payroll. Yeah. Sweaty Betty is a yoga apparel store. Well, all sport. All sport. All sport. Sorry. Yes. Um, and I loved, loved the job, but zero hours isn't great. I spent all of my Sundays for about a year calling around all 25 city stores trying to get more hours because I was only given one shift at my home store per week. And that's obviously not enough to live off of. And I was only being paid, I want to say eight to nine pounds, which was at the time London living wage. So it wasn't enough to live off of. Anyway, super fast forward. I moved back to LA and I met Haley two years ago and she told me about Fair Work Week. I can't believe it's been that long, but I am someone who like many workers at CVS or Target or Walmart or bigger box companies have experienced shifts being changed, moved up, pushed back, taken away, not knowing how many hours I'm going to have one week and literally just spending hours trying to get more work so that I could pay my bills. I am now in a situation where I've been a manager for about three and a half or four years. So I didn't spend a whole lot of time being a sales associate on the floor and have controlled my schedule for a large amount of time, but it's still as precarious as um, someone who doesn't have control over their schedule. Are there places in the country uh, that have restrictions on on how employers can move people's shifts around? Like, are there, is there a good version of this somewhere? Yeah, so Fair Work Week is actually an, a national movement. Policies have passed in San Francisco and Emeryville in New York City, Philadelphia, the state of Oregon. Chicago is moving one. Most recently, New Jersey is moving one. LA is actually pretty far behind on this. Most of the cities that we like to think of ourselves as competitive with have already done this. Uh, Los Angeles is also a very large city. 
We have about 147,000 retail workers here. Mm. It's the second largest sector in the city after only healthcare. So it's a really big problem and a lot and a lot of people are facing it. So what's happening before the city right now? Like what like wh- where where is where is it at? Is there a motion like being put up? Like what are we like what are we waiting on to happen next? There is a motion. It was put before the city council last year signed by Curran Price, Paul Koretz, and Herb Wesson. So the intention is there. It's in the Economic Development Committee. They've met on it a few times. They'll meet on it again at the end of this month. And hopefully it will be before council for a vote by the end of the year. I imagine here it would be an even bigger issue to have to plan out your schedule in advance than it is in other places because the commute is such a huge part of your scheduling life like your I know your commutes Rachel have been brutal over the last few years like talk about just like the experience of having to move your schedule around like with that much driving as part of your day so I and it's a super privilege and I want to put it out there right now as a manager who works for luxury brands my experience is not the experience that we should be advocating like from right Mm -hmm. like I I want to ensure that this policy helps mostly big box retailers because they face the most precarity in their jobs. That being said, if you want to make a career in retail, the fact of the matter is that you have to work for these luxury brands that are over the hill. If you live in the valley, there's no way you're going to be making a decent living wage in retail. So I have always worked in Santa Monica or on the West side. So my commute is from the Valley to Santa Monica. I drive the 405 twice a day and sit in traffic anywhere from one to two hours, depending on if there's been an accident or someone has stalled out. When the fires happened, the Getty fire a few weeks ago, that was incredibly scary. I had no idea if the freeways were going to be shut down, but that happened on a Monday And I always have to get in early on Mondays to do paperwork. So I had left my house at six and I got there around 8.30. And I texted my boss midway through my shift illegally, don't text and drive, but I had to because I knew I was going to clock in late. Mm -hmm. And I just had to text her, hey, my route is it through this fire. And so when my shifts have to change, if I have to go in early instead of later, that I have to add another two hours in the morning to my day, as well as after, because there's always traffic going to and from Santa Monica from the Valley. Mm -hmm. We're we're talking about retail primarily, but this is, I guess, a question about larger uh, labor issues in L.A. There are lots of people that work in homes, whether they're housekeepers, gardeners or things like that, who also do what basically amounts to shift work, especially in some of these really large residences. Are they is it possible to protect them at all from illegal labor practices like if this passed i assume it wouldn't extend to them but like is is this a kind of labor that operates like completely in the dark or is there like any effort to bring them in to, to, to some of these protections that are being talked about for more visible work sure the reason that we chose to do this policy specifically to retail was so that we could tailor it specifically to retail but i do think there are pieces of this legislation that could fit all different kinds of workplaces and that we really hope that this can be used as a model to extend to, you know, the restaurant industry, mm-hmm. to domestic work and to any kind of any kind of employment situation where you're dealing with unpredictable, unreliable scheduling shifts that get canceled at the last minute, employers who ask you to stay late at your job, not knowing your schedule until the day before you have to work. These are all things that a lot of people in precarious employment situations have to deal with. Mm -hmm. Nannying, I know, is a huge one where you just get a call saying, can you come right now? We don't need you tomorrow. Like 
things like that. Um, right. And one of the great fair work week protections is that if you do have a shift canceled at the last minute, mm-hmm. then you would need to be paid half time for that canceled yeah. shift. And I think that that could extend to all kinds of employment situations. Cool. How, how does this address the problem of like retail locations are closing? I've, you know, basically like the West Side Pavilion is being turned into a Google tech hub, right? And we're losing a lot of our anchor stores and a lot of the the footprint of these big, big all types of stores. So how do we make sure that jobs stay in places, especially and that are transit accessible or that people can actually live near? I mean, I think we need to change the way that we think about retail jobs and the conversation we have around them. A lot of people, and I read this online, I've had people speak to me this way in stores, like my job doesn't matter. It can be replaced by the internet. It will be. My job is irrelevant. But we need to start thinking of these jobs as not just after school jobs. It doesn't really matter if you lose it. There are people, um, I'm 28. I've been in retail for five years now, and I am lucky to have it be a career for me, but I have managed people who are 45, 50, who are older, who needed to take these jobs because they needed extra money. And so I think when we start to think about these jobs as the essential roles that they are, maybe we wouldn't be so quick to let people shut down brick and mortar stores because we don't have any protections as retail workers. A lot of us are not unionized. And when we lose our jobs, that's kind of it. I was recently laid off this summer from Michael Kors and thankfully I did have a severance, but a lot of people don't have that. And I I don't have kids or a family or anything where it was that detrimental to my situation, but I could not have imagined that happening to me with no severance and kids to feed or a mortgage to pay. So I think we need to start really thinking of these jobs as essential and deserving of respect and protections from politicians and government, but also other people. Yeah, I think with store closures, specifically Kmart, Sears, Toys R Us, we see these big behemoth stores. Forever 21. Forever 21, declare bankruptcy. It's often due to mismanagement. It's often due to private equity takeovers and getting into lots of debt and doing crazy things with real estate that have nothing to do with the people who work for them. And ultimately, when those jobs go away, whether folks get severance or not, and hopefully they are able to band together and fight for severance, they will end up working in retail probably at their next job. And so getting these protections in place, it's almost, I don't want to say irrelevant, but these folks are going to be working in retail. It is the largest sector of employment in our city and passing these protections isn't really going to make stores close or not. That has to do with much deeper rooted issues and with private equity vultures sucking revenue out of these companies and leaving them to die. I think what people need to think about too is you're shopping locally. You know, there's all this like shop local, right? But you're also just shopping at your local like CVS or whatever. That's jobs that you're supporting. Those are people. And we've been trying to cut back on our, you know, online shopping and delivery, Amazon delivery type things. And I, we have one of those new little city targets that opened by us and it's like five blocks away. And I'm like, let me just go there first and see if I could find what I need. And they almost always have it. And it's a nice walk and it, you see people in the neighborhood and you talk to the people you see all the time. And I think people kind of forget that part. They don't think that way anymore, especially in LA, right? Right. And I will plug, go to the checkout person. Thank you. Tell them to have a nice day. These corporations do this thing where they'll put only one checker on duty and create an artificial line and then try to encourage people to go use the self-checkout because they think, 
if you use it once, then you'll get used to it. You'll know how it works and you'll keep using it again. And then we can lay off our checkers. Where sometimes someone is working to help people use the self-checkout. Yeah, like one person. Being forced to speed along their own obsolescence yeah. to like get people used to not needing them well, I can ne- I can never use it because you have to, if you buy alcohol, you have to talk to a real person. So. <laughs> it's also free labor for that company, which I don't get either, right? Like you're taking someone's job and you're performing a duty that yes. someone else should be paid for. What else is Lane working on right now? Oh, boy. Well, we are working right now on several campaigns, as always. We have our Repower campaign, which is working towards a just transition away from fossil fuels that takes the workers into consideration and makes sure that we aren't losing jobs just because we're moving our energy to greener solutions. Um, we have our Don't Waste... Up, greener. <laughs> <laughs> going to say it from now on. <laughs> We have our Don't Waste LA campaign, which works with sanitation workers who uh, right now there's a big dispute happening between sanitation workers who service the city of Beverly Hills, as well as Glendale and Burbank with their employer Athens Services or Athens Environmental Services, as they like to be called, who are kind of standing in the way of a unionization effort. And so we're standing with those workers as they try to put some pressure on that company to be a good actor and allow them to collectively bargain. We've done a march through Beverly Hills and we may do one again. So businesses of Beverly Hills, support your trash pickup workers. Did you, did I see that you went down to Athens with Lane to like where they have their enormous recycling facility and like the, is it like a landfill basically there? I mean, no. So the trash comes there, gets dumped onto the concrete, mm-hmm. and then long haul trucks come in. You load the long haul trucks up with the trash that is on the shorter haul trucks, and then those go out to a landfill somewhere where we don't see it out. Uh-huh. Yeah. So those will go up north to a landfill. But they have these recycling centers all over the city. There's the one I've been to is in Sun Valley. There's also a yard in Torrance and a yard in Pacoima. And that's where if you see trash trucks just around those, that's where the trash ends up. It just gets pushed onto the concrete. The recycling goes into an enclosed space where it goes on a conveyor belt and gets sorted. But yeah, it smells disgusting up there, even at three in the morning when it's cold. And these workers work without masks, which is crazy to me. Every single day breathing in those fumes. I've heard stories of people just slipping on trash juice and falling on their face and continuing to work or getting stuck with a needle. So Mm. wrap your needles in tape or something and be kind. Uh, what about compost? Is is that the same collection service or is that a different organization? So in the city of LA, homes have compost, right. but businesses and okay. apartments do not. So businesses and apartments are serviced by private companies, mm-hmm. whereas private homes are serviced by the city. So only the okay. city right now has compost, although the city of LA is supposed to be rolling out compost for businesses and for apartments, which is together known as commercial waste hauling. Yeah. So that should be coming in the near future, in the next few years. Cool. I want to talk about another story from LA Taco. Did you see their investigation into illegal planters this week? This is something we really haven't talked about too much on the show, but this is a widespread phenomenon now in Los Angeles where business groups and in some cases neighborhood associations are pushing back on encampments of people who are homeless by once the encampments are are swept out, putting in place planters. Sometimes in San Francisco, I saw they use just big rocks. Big rocks. <laughs> uh, and then when those get rolled into the street, they, they just uh, replace them, them with back. Or bigger and bigger rocks. LA Taco looked at uh, 150 planters through the Department of Public Works to see if any of them were permitted. Not a single one 
was. Every one of these is illegal. And in most cases, the city, LAPD, just kind of leave them there. And in some, they encourage their placement, putting them after a sweep, basically putting the planters in so they, they're less likely to have to come back. This is the kind of hostile architecture we've talked about on the show in the past, the little armrests on benches, just little signals to people that are trying to sleep somewhere that they're not supposed to be there. What do we do? I mean, one uh, interesting thing about it is that if you see one of these planters, you can probably destroy it yourself, right? Isn't that what that means? We should move them all into the street and create protected bike lanes with them. It'd be pretty easy. Another thing that's uh, that is just really outrageous is that homeowner groups are raising like hundreds of thousands of dollars to build and plant these mm-hmm. that money could be going to help the people they're trying to keep away. Mm-hmm. I mean, this it's just like this horrible cycle that we're seeing repeat. It's just really the rocks in San Francisco. That was next level, though, because yeah. they put people rolled them in the street and then they put them back. The city came and picked them up and put them back on the sidewalk. I mean, that's what we're, that's the lesson here. That's, that's the precedent. So now, you know, I, I don't know the, the conclude, like you're saying, like, I don't know what the answer is. I don't know what conclusive, mm-hmm. you know, decision we're making about what to do, but I'd say you could like three, one, one, like report them as an, a sidewalk obstruction, maybe like yeah. Maybe, yeah. I don't you know. can report them or destroy them is a good idea too. Cause it's not whose property is it? Right. It's like just been dumped there. That's illegal dumping. And if there's no other way to house people and you're just going to put up hostile architecture or planters, just destroy them. That's my my take. That's the only logical explanation. It's you, you, I want to point out, too, that in a lot of cases, the encampments that were in these places were swept out under ADA regulations to allow people to get by in wheelchairs. And then the planters that are put up in their place become new ADA violations because they take up so much of the sidewalk that people can't get past anyway. But those tend to stay in a way that the encampments don't necessarily. I'll tell my LA story since we have a little time. This week, I got a text from a couple who we've worked with in SELA, the homeless services nonprofit I worked with for a long time, saying that the woman uh, and the couple had discovered that she was pregnant and they'd been looking for housing forever. They'd had a Section 8 uh, voucher that lapsed uh, earlier this year because they couldn't find anywhere in the area that would take Section 8. But they wanted shelter. They wanted like to find a motel voucher or uh, like something like they didn't even ask for a motel voucher. They wanted to get into a, into a shelter of some kind. But if you're pregnant, a shelter is not necessarily a great spot. There's zero privacy. You're in you, and you can't almost anywhere stay with your partner who is helping take care of her and things like that. So I called 211, which is the county line that you're supposed to connect to, like to help people find services. Talked to a very nice person at 211. They told me that if you are pregnant, you can uh, get a motel voucher really fast if you are six months pregnant. So, and how they decide exactly what, I guess you get a doctor's note or something saying that you like meet the requirements. She's only four months. So she was either going to have to like wait it out, but they said, we can put you in touch with PATH. And that was great. PATH is like a big uh, homeless services group. Uh, and what 211 did was call PATH twice. They didn't pick up. And so they left two voicemails just saying like, hey, there's this, like, call this person. But it's like, I could have done that. Like, I know, like, you know, I know what PATH is. Like, I, I don't know. I just sort there's of. There's no system of like putting someone's information into a computer and 
sharing that information and getting like a confirmation via text or something like that. There I mean, is not that. I mean, they connect the two one one just connects you to one of the other service providers, which I would definitely have done if I thought Path would answer the phone, which often a lot of these providers don't. I called St. Joseph Center. They didn't answer the phone. Like a lot of them don't have people manning the front desk consistently. So we Sela is putting them up for for like the the time being. We are working with someone at Lhasa who we know personally, a case manager who is excellent, who is going to help them find something. But the motel where we put them up at, I dropped them off, uh, and it was a motel with bathrooms on each floor, not like not in the room. It was basically an SRO, like a converted SRO, which I never really see anymore in like most of the LA basin kind of bathrooms and showers in separate rooms on the floor but i was just kind of thinking like this is good this is like good shelter for people like bed closet sink in the room access to bathrooms right there privacy a door that you can lock like it's it's the kind of thing that it feels like we should have everywhere and i don't think for the most part you you are allowed to build that right. kind you of structure build that new right now yeah. this is like a pretty old place it's, I'm still like tripping up on the six months thing. Like yeah. the early months when you're pregnant is like the most critical time for you to get prenatal care that could determine the outcome of whether your baby makes it into the world or not. And yeah. so why do they He's arbitrarily as well? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's, it's I mean, not, I had a baby when I was 40, like, but it's not that old, but that's one of the things they would particularly look for to make sure that you're going to be, you know, you're healthy. So who sets this six month like? It seems arbitrary, doesn't that it? It makes me really angry, and I'm I'm really angry to hear that that's all they could do for you when you called. And you compare it to a place like New York, where when you call to get a motel voucher, you get one, and get it one. doesn't no matter, matter who you are, or they direct you to a shelter where you can at yeah. least spend the night for that night. Like legally, they have to do that. And not only do we not have shelters for women in a vul- vulnerable situation. Women who are pregnant, it has to be women who are have been pregnant for a certain amount of That's so messed up. But on the bright side, the clinics that are that uh, are helping her with this are pretty nice. like like she, like medical care is much more accessible for Good. pregnancy. so i'll I'll keep everyone posted on how that is going. Haley, Rachel, thank you so much for coming. Anything else you'd like to plug? Um, Black Friday's coming up in two weeks. Now you uh, <laughs> you just want people to be nice? Just be nice. If you choose to shop um, for Black Friday, try not to start at Thanksgiving night. We deserve to have our stores closed. My store is closed, luckily, but a lot of people are still open on Thanksgiving night. But if you do decide to come in on Black Friday and we are out of your size or don't have the item that you wanted, we are sorry. <laughs> we only get limited stock. Mm-hmm. And we also would like to be home with our families. So please just understand the long lines understand that we are extremely exhausted and just a thank you and a smile would be really great and talk about fair work week with people that you meet in line your cashiers your baristas really anyone you know in a service industry because when this passes in our city we i I mean it's my hope that we can pass this to all other workers we're all precarious workers unless we own our businesses or the companies so it's really important that we ensure that our policy is the strongest in the country because la leads the way on so many issues and we should be leading the way on workers' rights. Rachel is at Rachel underscore Reyes on Twitter. Haley is at just Haley P on Twitter. 
<laughs> but without the word I think just. It's just Haley P. Just Haley P. That's really sweet. Thank you for doing the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We will be back next week on LA Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye bye.